Well, thank you again. And sure. do you want to maybe just spend a couple of minutes explaining your career path and how you went from A to B to Z? Sure. Awesome. Um, my father was a, uh, came up through the trades and um, it's something I don't think you'll be able to get your arms around, but um, he and my mom had two boys during the depression and work was kind of hit or miss. And families that got through that period in American history, the, the greatest generation kind of folks, um, he ended up at, a, at the Austin Company. And they had offices in Seattle. In fact, I worked there back in the late 70s. And I ended up there after graduating from college. Uh, it was one of those economic down periods and all of the recruiters wanted the same student. And uh, I would go on these interviews, just one for the experience and just to see what the company's all about. But I had like 60 rejections and I just pasted them on my wall in my, in my dorm room. And uh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my dad kind of being the guy he was, he says, all right, we're going up and where he used to work and we'll get you started. And I, I just said, Pop, now I want to try and find my own job. Typical graduate attitude. And so I worked as a mechanics helper in a boatyard. And that job uh, ended. And my dad tried a little different approach. And it was like, if it's all right with you, can we go up and see Jack Bennett and talk about a job? And I was ready then. So I started with the Austin Company as a engineer on the board. There were no blueprints being produced at that time. It was all hand-drawn and specs were pretty much handwritten and then transcribed by a clerical admin type into a huge document. I then, from the office in New Jersey, I had a chance to work in Detroit in the field right away. It was a million square foot automobile stamping plant and Detroit was a big union town and very very aggressive very protective of jobs and I don't say that in with any pejorative intent um, unions exist because of crappy management so but it was interesting to see how it worked a labor steward pulled a gun on one of the carpenters and they threw him off the job and he was back the next day. Well, and that's pretty much an indication of how strong the unions were at, at keeping people on the job. And so you just had to understand those sort of cultural things, if you will, job culture. So I was an Austin brat and uh, I was fortunate enough. It was privately held and I was offered stock, which is kind of unheard of for a young person. But the, the district manager had known me since I was three years old and never missed an opportunity to remind me that I walked in his swimming pool before the paint was dry. <laughs> yeah, that's just good career. Worked with a, a number of experienced engineers, kind of mid-career, and they just they were very kind in teaching me how to do things and sharing information with me. And so I, I worked there a short period of time before I was sent to Detroit, and that was the million square foot stamping plant. And then I moved around the, the country quite a bit. I worked in um, Houston, I worked in Chicago, Detroit, and Seattle, Greek Air Force. And so I got to design this painting hangar and that was pretty neat. And Austin, in, in those days, they designed and built the uh, 747 assembly plant uh, north of the city. Very cool. Big, yeah, big, big building. And, and that was their area of expertise. I mean, they designed their own steel, and they could crank out trusses. Uh, it was a design-build effort, and so their own people erected the steel. 
and they had their own trades foreman, but they picked up the tradespeople from the hall. And it was, I really enjoyed it because everybody was on the same team compared to later in my career where there was a, a construction manager and there were eight or nine so-called prime contractors and you had the architect and, and they were all kind of adversarial, uh, at least by comparison. So I spent, oh gosh, eight or nine years working primarily in Cleveland and uh, got to the point where I was starting to learn more how not to do things than how to do things. And I got a little itchy feet, called up a good friend of mine who worked for a uh, construction management firm and I left Austin. And so I learned a different way of construction and it was very, very revealing. I was a field superintendent. They had me do mechanical and electrical that was a good job. That was in a laboratory medicine building. So there was a lot of nifty mechanical stuff, medical gases, big, big packaged air handlers. And, and uh, as that job was winding down, a guy from the clinic told me they had a management change and they were looking for a mechanical person. And the deal with Gilbane was the next assignment I'd have to move. And at, at the time, my fiance was a teacher and moving really isn't the best thing in the world for a, a K-12 kind of teacher because it's tough to get settled and then have to move. And yeah. so I started cozying up to that job and, and uh, was fortunate enough to get the job. And so I didn't have to move and things were were very nice and hospital life that's where you start to get into not so much building codes but the joint commission on hospital accreditation the jcah really drives a lot of what hospitals do so i learned a little bit about that it was exciting because it was like the first phase of their expansion program and so i got in the middle of that to a certain extent, evaluating things from the uh, maintenance and operations perspective on the one hand, and on the other, doing some very small capital projects for the power plant group that I managed. So it was, I got a chance to do a little of both. It was always something new. And my model was Disneyland. (laughs) And, And so you think about Disneyland, and the people are there from, I don't know, eight in the morning till night or nine or 10 o'clock at night. And it's a lot like visiting hours and daytime hours at the hospital where you have the employees and the staff and you have the visitors. And the trick is to make it look like nothing's going on as far as maintenance or operations. And I had emphasized getting major work done uh, on second and third shift because the the hospital was a 24-7 kind of deal. And the point about caring for your people, I didn't realize it at the time, but that had made quite an impact on on me in terms of some things I, I ended up doing in the future where a couple folks got into some disciplinary trouble and they were on the verge of being terminated. And I helped them survive that and more or less were able to continue their careers. And we were able to keep good people. And the one guy got promoted twice. And I had a little bit of a role in that in terms of to get from this low level laborers job, you had to get a license to be able to step up to be a boiler operator. Right. And you got guys that were making seven bucks an hour and there just isn't any discretionary income to pay for that. And and so I became a cheerleader, encouraged them to go out and look for financial aid and things like that. And and I just did the math. And, And I said, let's say that you stay as a filter changer for the next 40 years of your career. And that's so many hours. And let's say you're making eight bucks an hour. So at the end of your career, you're going to have this much money. 
Now, if you're able to get promoted to the job that pays 10 bucks an hour, guess what? Under the same conditions, you're going to have X amount more. And uh, I guess that was a, an opportunity for me to let the employee see the job in a little different light than they had been, been used to. And that guy, he was, he's a prince. I mean, he, boiler operator to building engineer. And it was really gratifying to me to see the, the man reach a higher potential. One of my little bullets is, whether you like it or not, you're going to work for idiots. And it's, in, it's inevitable, I think. And so maybe I was lucky, but learning how to deal with that, it was easier the first time around than the second. And, and I pretty much became, oh, a pain in the neck, I guess. And uh, if anything bad happened, I was blamed for it, things like that. At least that's how it felt. And the boss at the hospital had had some problems. I mean, he was OCD big time. And so you, you deal with that. And if the politics were that my boss's boss was covering for him, it's like, okay, fine. There's nothing you can do about it. And, and either you leave or you, you shut up. And uh, so that was a situation of really waiting for an opportunity to leave even though the relationship with the people that uh, worked for me was terrific. They wanted to do good work. Uh, they enjoyed challenges. I had one of them tell me, uh, the sales representative came into the office area for the operators. And we got into this conversation about pumps. And it was just shop talk. One of the guys just looked at me and said, thank you. I haven't heard a good technical discussion like that in a really long time. I guess I had a little bit of a, a gift that way. So you learned a lot about big air conditioning systems. And Cleveland being adjacent to Lake Erie, there was a lot of water. And so cooling towers, uh, water was, was in abundance and, and was really the, the right choice as far as large-scale cooling systems and, and things like that. So learned a lot about that. And that's more or less what got me active in ASHRAE at the society level, because we had all these chillers and cooling towers and there's a technical committee, 8.2, which is centrifugal machines. And one of their people reached out and said, we're looking for members. And next thing you know, I, I got the okay to participate from my boss and made it up to committee chair and so forth. And then the, the job changed. And while there were still chillers at the uh, NASA facility, I was a level or two removed from them. I don't know why certain things happened to me. And, and the uh, chiller mechanic was someone I had known from the hospital. And he came out to work on one of these, oh gosh, they had stuff from the 1940s. It was a very interesting challenge that you're dealing with antiques as well as new stuff and how to make it all work. And so a fire alarm goes off and I walk into this building and it's all centrifugal compressors and exhausters. And just one of the things you do is you yell at the service people, whether they deserve it or not, just because that's what you do. And the guy was a good friend of mine. And I walked in and I just said, what did you do? Here's this fire alarm going off. And he said, and next thing you know, he's, he's admitting he hung his coat on a pull station. Oh, and no. the coat was heavy that it pulled the pull station. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea. And I'm chewing him out all and faking it. And then I learned that I was right. I don't know what made me do that, but we had a good laugh about it. So that's funny. Uh, I still but, remember uh, someone that I went to school with. She was hanging up clothes to dry on the sprinkler heads <laughs> that set off all the sprinklers on our floor, and it was awful. Yeah, but that's well, that's good. You learn. 
<laughs> Lots of learning. And one of the other things as I was thinking about, I thought it was valuable when I, when I was in school that trial and error has served humanity for eons. And it still does. And, and to be careful about copying an attitude just because you have a, a diploma. And especially with NASA, you know, you look at, okay, how many probes have they launched to Mars before they started getting it right? That's at the highest level and they're still doing trial and error. So it's still a, a valid technique, I guess, is what I, what I want to say. I think that's a good point too, though, because I I sometimes feel from the students that there's a really high level of stress when they don't get it right the first time or the second time. And you just have to keep going. And it's all of those little failures that help you figure out how to make it work the next time. And it's hard to encourage that without them going through it. And it can feel defeating at times, but I agree. It's, it's trying something and trying it again and you finally figure it out and sometimes you don't <laughs> but you have to go through that process yeah I think it's a covey observation when you lose don't lose the lesson mm-hmm. and maybe lose isn't the appropriate word when engaged in learning but I'm semi-convinced that life is a bigger portion of learning how not to do something than learning how to do something. Yeah. And for me, it was managing when the learning how not to became an exercise in diminishing returns. And, and then that to me was the signal, well, it's time to find something else. And I, I think I was blessed and, and pretty lucky in that regard that, that I always found something better. You might see it with university politics. And that's what NASA was like. You have all these technical people that two and two is four. I don't give a damn what you tell me. And and to try and politicize that, it gets really, really gummed up. Some engineers are very, very good at being able to put the objective scientific part of them, their lives aside and deal with the irrational politics. Others aren't. So, and on the past six, seven, eight years, NASA has become more politicized. The prime example, uh, federal funding, the budget each year is actually a law. And so if they set aside X dollars to build something and it's approved, you got to build it whether you need it or not, because it's the law. And no one, at least since I've been aware of it, has challenged, well, wait a minute, let's not do that. Let's fill out the paperwork and let's get things reversed and put this money to a a better use. Uh, The Bush administration was looking at a heavy launch vehicle to go to the moon, and they needed a new engine test stand. And they had this $300 million project. And... uh, the program gets canceled with the new administration at, at that time. And so you still had to finish the job. And long story short, on the same day, they had a ribbon cutting that the project was finished. And after the ceremony was over, they padlocked it. That's crazy. 300 mil. Wow. So, and that happens a lot. And that's just the way our country works, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that can get a little frustrating. Yeah, that actually makes me wonder. And I'm just thinking through, you know, ASHRAE guidelines, energy codes, different policies that inform different codes along the way. How have you seen, I guess, buildings and building operation change for better or for worse based on some of those changes? Like I imagine some are good and some don't make sense. Are there any that you can think of that fit into either one of those categories? Yes. Um, while I was at, at NASA, the last two years of my career there, I, I headed up the uh, environmental and energy management office. And so we had to deal with all of those things 
and report how much water we were using and how much energy we were using. And the administration would give us goals as to how much you had to reduce. And it's real hard in a, in a test facility. So the mission is obviously paramount. And then the facilities or the enabling organizations are the ones that are hit with the limitations. We, we were getting pretty smart in terms of the utility contracts that were negotiated. The guys were pretty sharp and we were able to hold power costs down. Uh, and the big thing there is the center at full load would draw 200 megawatts and, and because of the big wind tunnels. And so if you timed when you were going to operate those to the off hours, you could minimize demand charges and able to keep uh, schedules for testing and all those good things. And we were up for that. I guess the aggravating part was, and they want a lot of information. Who's going to read this? And, and especially on the environmental side, where it was, you changed the date on the report, literally because the parameters hadn't changed. So you just changed the date. And that didn't make any sense to me. But it's like, okay, you can fight this and go crazy, or you can just change the date. <laughs> yeah. And, and as long as the regulator didn't care, at least from a campus or a facility management perspective, you're trying to clean the place up environmentally. And you run up against, at least with the utilities, where you're trying to reduce the amount of electricity and water, for that matter, that you're using, and yet the schedule for test activity is going up. And the two are not compatible or reconcilable. And it's kind of like, okay, well, we're just going to have to take our lumps. And the people that are complaining, we're going to have to direct them to talk to the research people. But since the utilities were under essentially my organization's control, we were obviously at fault. And, uh, We'd be criticized for certain aspects of poor performance, whether it's something like KW or BTUs per square foot. That's how we boiled everything down to a common unit, if you will. And so you sit there and you're getting criticized, which that's fine. That comes with the turf. But then you find out that the data is, is a year old that management is using to judge what you're doing. And that's a tough one in terms of, I, I found that you wouldn't know that the data was so old because it was done either in a conference call like this, or it was done across the table or from headquarters, and you never knew what version of data they were looking at. And it wasn't until after where you got to see the, the documents themselves, and, and it's like, come back, come back, come back. That's not right. And, and that's, that's, just, that's just politics meets science. Yeah. And it was a lot of looking good is better than being good, unfortunately. Yeah. And there was that balance between looking out for the center's interests in terms of their ability to meet the mission, satisfying headquarters on some things that are really important, and then hopefully appeasing headquarters. That was fun. You know, you were doing something, you were making an improvement. Every little bit would help. Um, That's awesome. Were there any big changes that happened with the buildings themselves in terms of controls or building automation, things like that to help on the energy side? Just evolutionary. When I got there around 1990, they had embraced uh, automation system or building management system, and they weren't really using it to its full potential. And then we had thoughts of, boy, if we could integrate the maintenance management system with the building automation system, we might be able to get awareness of when something failed and automatically issue a work order and just have it taken care of without any human hands. And great idea. There just wasn't enough support for it. You got to fight your battles, and that wasn't one of them that was that was worth it. 
I, for a couple of years, at least based on the metrics, the maintenance program on my watch was really close to world-class in terms of the uh, amount of unplanned maintenance versus things that were planned. And it was just like this oiled machine. You just crank it up and, and it would take care of the maintenance. And, and they would have a measure. It was called backlog of maintenance and repair. And it, it was a metric for, in a certain sense, the effectiveness of one's maintenance program. And really, it was a measure of resources more than anything. So that if BMAR was growing, you knew your maintenance program was getting more behind and more behind because you couldn't do it. So you just put it into the backlog file. And what that would drive, again, two different pots, and I'll bet Washington State is the same way, where there's a capital budget that's independent of what I would call the functional or operational budget. So capital stuff is over here, and you can't use that to fund everyday ops and maintenance and vice versa. And so we couldn't share that money either. So you'd have to wait until the facility became almost non-functional. And then you could apply for capital money and restore it or knock it down, rebuild it. And that's just not a way to run facility, but that was the only game in town. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand that it's different in private versus public. And I'm thinking back to something you mentioned yesterday about the importance of commissioning. And it'd be great if you could share your your daylight and wall color example here in a minute, but just even being able to commission buildings might not be in the budget at times. And then systems aren't working how you planned for them to work. So you run into, I imagine, all kinds of maintenance operation issues because of that. Do you want to maybe tell your story? Oh, sure. You had um, Somewhere in the management hierarchy at, at NASA, they embraced sustainability. And there was like three pillars. Commissioning was one. And I think design for maintainability was, was another. And I'll try and remember the, the third. But we did develop our own coursework with the help of some consultants on a sustainability program. And from the umbrella of st- sustainability, then we we worked on a course for design for maintainability. And I remember there was one on safety, but there was also a push for lead certification and a big push to get employees with a lead accreditation, which I think was a good thing. And the point there was more focus on the reliability and the efficiency of buildings and the greenness through energy efficiency. And so all these good things came under the umbrella. And it was interesting. Everybody was worried about uh, there's not enough money in the project budget to do all that. And actually, in a competitive situation, most of the projects were completed with most of the option directed at sustainability. So you got this lead thing. And... One of the elements in that was this integrated design aspect between HVAC, lighting or electrical, and wall finishes, and how you optimize the three of those to get the right amount of foot candles, shall we say, and minimizing heat gain or heat loss, depending on the season, in the particular room. And in general, the, uh, the time frame is distorted between the facilities people and the program people. Typically, a NASA program has about a five-year life. And the facilities looks more at a 30 plus. And by default, it's more like 50. So the programs don't want to pay for long-term investments. And yet there's nobody else to do it. And so that was part of the appeal of sustainability, that it did have a longer-term perspective. So 
one of the things we had to be careful of was how quickly project players would disconnect from the project. And by that, I mean, making sure that all the integrated pieces were in fact fully integrated. And so one of the challenges with integrated design, you have to be careful in the future if you do a little redecorating in office areas because the colors and the finish, if you will, matte versus regular or glossy or what have you, is very, very important to minimizing the HVAC and, and the lighting load. And 10 years down the road, when the people that were present, when the building was built and the room was painted and the HVAC was designed, most likely aren't going to be around. And you get a, a new iteration of occupants and they want to make some, some changes. And so you're at risk, depending on what colors are picked, without the awareness that the colors are very, very important beyond the aesthetic, you could mess up, for lack of a better technical term, that relationship which optimized heating and lighting. And typically those things run a decade or longer before they become an issue. And at least my experience at NASA, they have not been prepared to deal with long-term kinds of things. There's this notion of an energy savings performance contract, and it's issued through the Department of Energy. And so what happens is a, a DOE registered contractor comes in and proposes, after a very brief study, doing an in-depth study and sees the opportunity to make some investments and lower uh, the energy consumption of the building or of the campus or what have you. And, and so if you were paying two bucks for electricity and they can create a system that it only costs a buck, then that dollar that you don't spend, that's what's used to pay the energy savings performance contractor. And for the life of this particular contract. And so you, the owner, do not see any cash savings until the contract is over. And if you've maintained all the good stuff that the performance contractor had installed, and that's where you'll actually see, because you don't have to pay the contractor anymore and you still have the energy savings kind of deal. It's a nice concept because again, we're usually funded one year at a time and to make commitments two or three years down the road or a longer term commitment to have to pay for something without having the resources guaranteed, people got a little nervous about that. And, and so we were right up to the altar, ready to get married, and our people backed off. I felt bad about leading them down this path, thinking that we'd go ahead with it. It was, it was a no-brainer as far as I was concerned, but we had a change in management. So, And that's Maybe another example of working for an idiot <laughs> and maybe not the fault of the individual. They came from a safety background and were suddenly thrust into the maintenance world and had no appreciation for what the history of this particular project was leading up to it. And so I was, had been working on this for several months. It's right where it needs to be. It's a good project. Well, I don't trust you. Oh, okay, fine. And, and so you get stuff like that where probably could have been more tactfully articulated, but part of the culture, this is just my opinion and my observation, the higher executives are more concerned about preservation mostly than maybe doing something uh, creative or innovative because they're afraid if the other one goes bad, it'll ruin their careers. Yeah. So I think it's a good point. Sometimes it's scary to be creative and innovative and it, it goes back to that point we're talking about with failure, right? Like sometimes you can't figure out really good solutions unless you fail. I feel the same way about kind of taking risk 
in terms of change. There's a level of risk involved in both of those that can be scary. So it's safer and easier just to, to not. <laughs> so we're not going to get a lot of good solutions if people don't push it. Yeah, very true. And that there must be some critical mass of dissatisfaction that finally pushes people to make the change because they can't live with what they got. Mm-hmm. The mindset was, well, we haven't failed yet. And that kind of attitude permeated that whole launch. Mm-hmm. And uh, people just couldn't bring themselves to focus on the alternative or that alternatives might happen. I know the curriculum is filled with technical things that students have to know. So the whole human factors, that awareness, that's got to be very, very tough. Yeah, it is. But I think it's really important. And especially for talking about working in truly integrated teams, this ties into that idea of that adversarial kind of relationship we see at times too. And whether that's between different disciplines or if you're on a site between different levels of people who are on site, that mutual respect. I imagine in your career, having that level of respect for people who are in different types of positions can give you a lot better outcomes than if uh, you're a total jerk. (laughs) You want to chat about that for a minute? Yeah. Some people are just natural born evil narcissists (laughs) and they enjoy being disruptive. Mm. But you get Folks that, for whatever reason, try building themselves up is more important than success of the group or success of the project. And that can be very detrimental to any kind of team success. And if it becomes apparent to you as a team member and maybe to some other folks, and it starts becoming a distraction, taking the team away from what the team needs to be doing, then whoever the leader is really has to intervene, the so-called intervention. And it's awful to go through. They're out there and you need to be cognizant of asking the question, okay, if this individual's behavior continues, what impact will it have, one, on the project, second, on the team, and third, on oneself? Because the behavior renders everyone almost inert. Mm-hmm. that it's tough to overcome. It can be a challenge to the, to the group success, and one just needs to be mindful of it. I think a basic tendency that I have seen is when people are evaluating the worth of doing something, more often than not, that evaluation occurs through the lens of best case scenario. No one wants to look at the worst case scenario. And yet you need to know what that is so that if you see the signs, you can deal with it well in advance of it becoming catastrophic. And some of that is driven by uh, the people that are doing the original analysis or proposing don't want to see their own work get rejected. And so they they put halos on it and all that good stuff. But hopefully there's a down-to-earth, objective kind of person that can look at the issue very objectively and talk about both sides, worst case and best case. And then the people can evaluate, okay, well, if a worst case scenario can occur, what's the probability and can we afford that happening if it does kind of thing Mm -hmm. I don't know I've seen a lot of money go down the drain just because it was a best case scenario evaluation and uh, as long as you do it in balance with with other possible outcomes you're in pretty good shape but to to ignore a downside to any endeavor I don't think is 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 good practice but I would say there's different levels of that too, where you're looking at a project big picture, but then all the way down to the details in lots of different ways that would affect O&M. So when you were talking about that, an example that came to my mind is I was working on a chapter talking about 
sustainability and energy and different building interfaces. So like light switches and operable windows and so on. And thinking through all of these things. And if you have a building and it operates in a certain way, I mean, COVID is a perfect example of looking at ventilation and what types of systems you're using and can you separate heating and cooling from ventilation or should you? And there's all these different balls in the air, right? And you have to think through, will this building still work if X, Y, or Z happens? And one of the examples that we saw was after Hurricane Katrina, there was a building that was dealing with all kinds of ventilation issues and mold and they didn't have windows that could open so the occupants were having to throw chairs through the windows to get fresh air. And so I guess it just popped in my head as an example when you were talking through that, if you're thinking about operations and maintenance and design and working with the team and trying to pull off this really great building, you, you can't forget about the common sense stuff too. Oh, um, you're absolutely right. And that's firmly connected with involving the end user in the design process, mm-hmm. getting that input. And it's more than just, well, we don't like XYZ water closets. We like ABCs. And, and that's all helpful. And, and there's a reason why they prefer one brand perhaps over another. But having that experience over several years and weather cycles, where the limitations are in their experience and what they'd like to see to deal with it better. Oh, there's a wealth of information. And, you know, these are the folks that primarily learn by doing, and there's nothing in the world wrong with that. And they know their stuff backwards and forwards. They may not be able to articulate it as smoothly, but in their own way, they're just as smart. I think back to Johnson Space Center and they were putting an environmental improvement in one of their boilers. And it was a installing a burner that resulted in low nitrous oxide exhaust. And so they bring the, the gentleman that invented the burner out to tell the, the workers, the boiler operators and the, the building engineers how this thing works. And he well, guys, you just do this, this, and this, and you got it all set and set it and leave it alone. And pretty much that was unfair. One, it was unkind. Secondly, the guys just wanted to know how it worked, not just press the button and walk away. That was a real tragic training session. The workers never understood the extent of that gap. And for the life of me, I, I couldn't understand why the project people let this fellow get away with it. There was no question. He was very smart and very intelligent, but he had to adjust the training pitch for the audience, not the other way around. Anyway, long story short, they had, a, they had an accident and they blew the boiler up. I spent a year down there doing the mishap report. Anyways... If the design specifications and the scope of work said, screw this thing up in the worst way possible, people will still do better than that on a project and stuff will go wrong. And that's what this thing in Texas was. Yeah. Just every, an onion, you peel away a layer, there's another layer of screw ups. All right, you get through that, another layer, more screw ups. Like here in Cleveland, I have a third class stationary engineers license so i can operate like up to 150 psi boiler and steam driven turbine pumps and things like that but these poor folks in in houston um there really wasn't a a requirement for a license which uh i have my own issues with apart from the job and they would kind of pull people off the street and here, hang out with Joe for a few weeks and get the hang of operating the boiler. <laughs> Woo! And I understand there's an expedient there that may be necessitated, but there was no one with any comprehensive boiler knowledge, steam plant knowledge, or safety knowledge in charge. Unfortunately, the NASA people were asleep at the switch. 
I lost a few friends during that investigation. Yeah. Well, it just goes to show though, like how important that communication is, but also training and an understanding of what's actually being specified and operated and maintained in the long run. There's lots of different levels. There's probably a communication breakdown, sounds like. Yes. At the end of the project, it was always in the specifications that you had to put the owner's manual together, which in 1972 consisted of a three-ring binder with vendor cuts of the various equipment. And some of the manufacturers, they would have a section on regular maintenance that would be a good idea to perform. And, and this is before anything like maintenance management systems or preventive maintenance or condition-based maintenance, stuff like that. And so you would get this essentially a binder full of catalog cuts. And you would get, if you were lucky, the as-built drawings so that you would know where things actually were installed as opposed to where the drawings might show them. Unfortunately, that cuts in pretty deeply to the profit margin of the contractor in question because it's the last part of the job. Usually all the money is spent. And so you try and get through that owner's manual process as painlessly as possible. It's um, mitigated somewhat by the issue of commissioning, which provides additional documentation and additional activities to verify what was designed and installed was actually installed and works as it's supposed to. So commissioning can save a lot of problems down the road if owners are willing to, to pay for it. But uh, commissioning is pretty important to uh, verify that you're getting what you paid for. Yeah, definitely. I think that sometimes that, that gets missed as well along the way. So I agree. Very, very important. So we, we have a couple minutes left here. Oh. And I'm just wondering, so I told you before, we have about half construction management students in this class and about half architecture students. And I'm, I'm just curious from everything you've learned through your career, which is a lot, but in terms of their specific disciplines and designing buildings and also getting them built, do you have any words of wisdom to pass along or things you hope they focus on or do differently from what you've seen before? Yeah, I think I'll go to my tier. It's a good list. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I would encourage all your students, regardless of discipline, to do a little reading on leadership. No good leadership when you see it. And if the leadership might not be so good, knowing what you know can help you compensate. In that whole journey that took me to reading some of the texts I've told you about, came about because I started doubting my own value system for leading people because of the way my boss at the time was behaving. And I should say conducting himself. And so it was a great sanity check for me that I was more aligned with all these authors in both philosophy and, and in action. So that was a great affirmation. It's always good to have that sanity check, whether it's a leadership book, whether it's a, uh, a book on management. On the subject of management, if you put yourself into the manager's shoes, they need accurate information to make better decisions. And that tells me, okay, you don't lie, you don't sugarcoat, you tell it the way that it is, thus and such is not performing correctly, and you do it kind of without attributing fault. The manager needs to know what's going on, what's the impact, and if you're lucky, you'll get asked how to resolve it. Do your homework. These days, I, I'm an expert witness, and, and so I read a lot of transcripts 
about contractor negligence in maintaining gas-fired appliances. And uh, one of the experts on the other side was talking about how our client was negligent. The guy said, well, yeah, that doesn't conform to uh, the standard. But our lawyer said, well, have you read the standard? No. Now, that's a great picture of a jack. <laughs> and you don't want to be like that. Credibility is right behind trust. Mm-hmm. In terms, it's great to have and so easy to lose. Do keep that in mind and at least make an honest effort. And if you don't get all the information you think you need, say so. The important thing is that you can be relied upon. And that's just priceless. Really, really is. And whether you're doing construction management, really important also with an architect because you've got other consultants that are relying upon you for guidance and, and dealing with the client. So you have the job of synthesizing all these abstract concepts and hopefully painting a picture that the client can visualize what you're talking about. But in that kind of situation, avoid the multi-syllable words and saying stuff to sound important. That kind of stuff doesn't fly out in the field. I mean, you got to talk common sense straight up. And if you find someone that is following you, then you can kind of evolve together so that you feel more comfortable making your point. But people have different learning styles. They're all valid. And one is they learn by visual means, reading primarily, hearing, listening to lectures or explanations from experts. And a lot of folks learn by doing. And you look at your typical technician or tradesperson, I have heard some statistics that at least three in 10 have a learning disability. Now, learning disability does not equal dumbness. It just means it takes a little longer to get the material in and understood. Technicians are smart as whips. Uh, They might have a little trouble articulating that, but they know what they're doing. And they know how to do it. And after a sufficient amount of experience, they know how to do it very well. So there's no need to condescend because someone has a different learning style than you. The important thing is that Whatever point you're trying to make is heard and understood. And in any discussion where you have information exchanged or promises made, do not assume that both parties or multiple parties are all on the same page until you ask. And you gotta ask, Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what the goal is? You don't have to be a hero and top dog. What you have to be able to do is get other people to do the work you want them to do. And they need to get clear reception of what's required, what's needed, and what the priorities are. And if those don't happen, it's not the other person's fault. I'm here to tell you. Pretty much all of these points you're making apply to relationships of any kind. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's true. Mm -hmm. And I guess, lastly, keep life in balance. You know, if you like your job and you're really enthused about it, sometimes you get a little too involved in the work. And the message I have for you there. How many people do you think on their deathbed ever said, I didn't spend enough time in the office? Not a whole lot. (laughs) Well, and not having quite been on the deathbed, I I assume that's that's the case. Mm -hmm. Um, I did leave a 
a few bullet points with your esteemed professor. <laughs> and if you're nice, she may share them with you. I hope I hit most of the points in my conversation today. Um, They're excellent points. And, and are there any others that you want to emphasize at all? Um, gee. Yes, thank you. Uh, I would encourage, it'd be a little easier for the architects, but you construction folks, I would ask you to consider getting professional registration. That is a key credential in the facilities world and especially the uh, design construction. In a lot of the environmental regulations, which would fall to the operating folks to uh, implement. The person doing the report or the implementation must also have a professional registration. Do it now before you leave school and you get part one done. It's usually multiple choice. Um, in addition to the license, professional societies are a great outlet for networking, for staying abreast of changes or updates and you know, kind of piggybacking on the license thing, those of you that become registered architects, you're going to have to take continuing education courses. And the rules are slightly different in each state and the professional society sometimes can help there. And also for your UCM guys. And I would recommend the Construction Industry Institute. It's a great resource for research-based construction project best practices. So CII, Construction Industry Institute. So let's see. I was a donkey because I wasn't using the, the latest edition of a ductwork construction standard. And I come running back to the office after this field inspection and the sky is falling. The sky is falling. What do you mean? Well, the work didn't conform to these standards of this issue of SMACNA. You know, what's the date? Oh, well, it was 1970. Kind of like, well, that's been superseded. And so you look pretty stupid. So learn from my stupidity that it only takes a few extra minutes to get the right document when you do that kind of research. Yeah. Also know that when buildings are built, they are subject to the building code and standards that are in force at the time of design slash construction. So what it means is if your building is built in 2015, you, you cannot apply building codes and other standards dated 2020 to the 2015 project. Keep that one in mind. Back burner, back burner. <laughs> that one's so, super important. I would caution against going into the job site, either temporary office or trailer, and start hanging up your diplomas, you're going to piss off all the tradespeople. And even though it's not intentional, and believe me, the world is filled with unintended consequences, they will take that as a gesture of showing them up. And you really don't want to get adversarial with the guys that are doing the actual work. So do keep that in mind. That's, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, but. The guy that did it was very proud and I don't begrudge that at all, but he wasn't thinking about those unintended consequences. Anyway, just a thought. I would encourage you to start a journal when you're on your job. And depending on how you learn, but jotting down events or achievements or lessons learned on a given day can help cement that learning much more strongly. Also, if you're in a tough situation, writing down that the bosses are SOB is very therapeutic. So, that's good. <laughs> uh, actually, I speak from experience when I say that. Uh, it really helped me to write down and made me go back and review and have a better understanding. These are all things that, that helped me. 
And you need to know the difference between leadership and management. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to look it up yourself. Well, that's it. Your career's done. <laughs> Time to retire, kids. That's so much good information. And I could talk to you forever. You just have so much to share. And I'm really, really thankful. I, I've met you through Asheray and recently you've started sharing lots of other good, juicy Asheray resources. And I mean, that's really what started this whole thought for this podcast is you've been sending me a lot of things that I didn't even know existed. And it makes me wonder how many other, you know, resources might get lost along the way just because people don't know and that transfer of knowledge never happens. So I just want to say thank you for taking the time to, to mentor me through stuff and mentor these students and Sure. Drop some lessons on them. <laughs> yeah. Well, every student likes a good challenge, and it was really my pleasure. I hope I didn't ramble too much. Not at all. You have a pretty impressive career, and you should enjoy the heck out of your retirement. <laughs> Anything yeah. else? I think that's it for now. All right, Julia. Take good. care. Thank yeah. you again. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you to Nia and their Better Bricks program for sponsoring these podcasts.